All right. Welcome to uh, If You've Come This Far. It's our podcast that uh, my buddy Sean and I do together where we talk to people that we think are interesting. And uh, Sean, you want to tell them who our guest is on this episode? Yeah. So Ben Feller um, is our guest. Uh, Ben is an author of a new book, Big Problems, Little Problems. Uh, Ben will call it a children's book. I think it's message fits for adults as well as for children. Ben is also the former uh, chief White House correspondent for the Associated Press, um, a really impressive, smart guy who um, who I stalked to come and talk with us. I, like that's a this is chief White House correspondent for the AP. Any White House correspondent is badassery, right? Like it's it's pretty elite territory. Not that many people get those jobs. And so uh, I'm, I'm super intrigued by that. Uh, we're not going to take the whole episode to talk about that stuff, but, but we're definitely going to find out more about that. And the book is great, right? We've, we've been lucky to, to see the book and it's, it's a beautiful little book. Well, for me, I, you know, it really resonated with me. Um, letting go is something that I'm constantly thinking about in, in living life. And he kind of looks at big problems, little problems, and how do you manage those things? And there's an air of letting a lesson of letting go in it. Um, that really resonated with me. So I, you know, I I thought it was great. And, and the illustration is also fantastic. Right. Right. I mean, the only bad thing you can say about Ben is that he went to Penn state really. Right. No, he's a Yankees fan. That's, oh, there's that, two. That's it, right. He's no, got two even, strikes. That's even worse than being a, a Nittany Lion graduate. <laughs> he's a uh, Yankees fan. Yeah, but, you know. And I, he lauds Bucky Dent, which is the worst thing that he could ever do. <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty sure that none of our listeners feel strongly about Bucky Dent as you do. Well, you know, I'm going to say there's a lot of people going to say, well, this guy's a fucking Bucky Dent lover. I'm out. <laughs> That's what I'm thinking. Well, he better come prepared to defend himself. Um, but the, the the more important thing is that he's a baseball lover, right? And yeah. so that's that's kind of refreshing. Um, if we ever get to see another baseball game again, which right. is up in the air, I guess. Well, he's got season tickets. He says he's got tickets to the opening day between the Sox and the Yankees. So it, okay. You know. Well, wait a minute. I feel like I'm out of touch. Did, did is the lockout? Solved? Oh yeah, it's over. Uh, April seventh is opening day. Okay. God, yeah. I'm an idiot. Yeah, that's right. I'm going to cut this part out. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you saying you're an idiot? (laughs) You got to keep it in. Uh, But Ben is not. Ben is is an is an impressive guy. Um, You know, I think it was a wonderful conversation we had with him. And um, you know, I I just I would say go buy ten copies of his book and share it with your friends. Yeah, coming out May seventeenth, I think. Something like that. It'll be everywhere. It's it's really it's a good little uh, gift book if you have friends with youngins or or not even youngins. As I told Ben, like my um, thirteen year old read it and took a lot away from it. So, shall we do this thing? Let's do it. All right. Okay. Um, Got to ask you, Ben. um, Now that we're on this subject, what is your favorite or your most prized? baseball card or do you are, do you have more than just baseball cards my I, I have baseball cards and football cards i'd say uh my favorite is a 1958 hank aaron mm. wow. because 
first of all, at St. Karen. Sure. But also, I did a little part-time work at this collectible store in my hometown when I was a kid. And I just got to love the owner and I loved everything about that store, you know, just like the living history of it and these, mm-hmm. you know, objects that were not attainable for me, but I just kept working away and working away. And he, after every hour, he would reduce the price of this thing. And finally, I forget what I paid for, but it was, it was mine. So there was like a personal attachment to this card and a guy that, I mean, I guess maybe I got to see Hank Aaron play a little bit before he retired, but it was more of the, wow, this is, that's, I mean, that's the home run King. And I I got to, uh, I got to get a little piece of history by owning that. And so that one I love, and I'm a big Yankee fan, even though I grew up in central Pennsylvania, we're right in the middle of the state. So you had your Phillies on the one side of the state and the pirates on the other, but we got the Yankees games piped in on channel 11. Um, And so I grew up, rooting for Reggie Jackson, Thurman Munson. My favorite player was actually the the shortstop, Bucky Dent, who always hit 220, and my dad could never understand why he's my favorite. <laughs> like, he's the Yankees shortstop. I'm out. I'm out. Okay, I'm a Red no. Sox fan. I'm out. Ty, you bring up Bucky Dent at the beginning? I'm out. <laughs> I know. And that's what I was I'm going to say. I was on a bus freshman year, playing freshman football in Salem, New Hampshire, and we're listening to the game over in the bus. Bucky hits the home run and it was, Oh, Oh, well, see, I was going to say, so, so Ben, you and I have known each other for a very short period of time. Um, (laughs) Mm -hmm. I I think we're, I think we might've graduated college the same year. I went to Notre Dame. Um, And so now I find out you're a pen, you're a mini lion and you're a Yankees fan. What are you a fucking Cowboys fan too? (laughs) What's the next thing you're going to spring on us here? Wait a minute. Do you, (laughs) now I got to tell the story. Do you, um, so I graduated Penn State in 1992. Yep, same, same year. Okay, so I'll tell you this quick story. You guys stop me whenever you want on this because I'm already having a blast. But uh, Penn State was playing Notre Dame in South Bend, and we upset them. I think Notre Dame was number one at the time. They had Rocket Ishmael. Yep, my better our team. class. Yep. Um, big upset, and so I was at this party at in state college and, and everybody just went bonkers because we somehow we beat Notre Dame on the road <clears throat> and uh, spill into the streets. We, we go all the way up to the stadiums and downtown to, to Beaver stadium is a hike. And we, you know, we, we break into the stadium. It was crazy to think about the story. And, and it's just, it's hallowed ground and you can't see anything because it's, it's empty of course. And this mob of students and we take down one of the goalposts and nobody knows what they're doing. And you know, cops hadn't come in there to stop it. And there's just this sort of like fervor and the, the, the momentum of all of these kids pulling down the goalposts just knocked me over, knocked me right out of my shoes. And I remember looking to the left and there was this mob, you know, at the goalposts, like, we can't believe we beat Notre Dame. And I looked to the right and there was nobody there, just a pair of shoes. I'm like, I should, I should go get my shoes. <laughs> so I, I come back and put them on and they couldn't get the goalposts out of the stadium. So bunch of students dropped it over broken to pieces they was on a pilgrimage to to paterno's house like that's crazy what you think about but i remember that that game uh so anyway yeah uh fuck notre dame and the red sox (laughs) 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 because because now the red sox have won so many times bucky Ah. dent goes and he's bucky dent's like the the grandpa oh come on sit at the table have some leftovers with us you know we don't really mind anymore because we keep winning the world series well, seriously, and by the and for the record, 
I've been saying for whatever it's been now for us, you and me, uh, Ben, yeah. like 30 years, I was a freshman the last time we won the national championship. So I've, I've served a little time as well. Right? Yes. So that's not right. like we're, we're raking them in. Um, that's awesome. I did. My wife and I drove through uh, Penn State on our way to New York for a wedding about uh, last summer. First time I'd ever been there. I never went out there for a game, but it's a cool college town. And that's where you is. grew up, right? Yeah, that's where I grew up. I mean, it's we're all nostalgic for our our college towns when we have good experiences, and that's the case for me. But because I grew up there, it has that extra layer of a home sense of place. Mm -hmm. um, it really is. It's a it's a beautiful sprawling campus with everything, and the town has grown up around it. But then you go one circle around that, and there's nothing. It's mm -hmm. just it's small towns and farmland, and that's it until you get to one end of the state or the other. It's a really interesting place. Well, growing up there, did you ever consider another another college, another university? Well, <clears throat> what happened was I moved in the middle of 10th grade from State College to Binghamton, New York, when my parents divorced. And I moved with my mom, who got a job at, at what was then called SUNY Binghamton. Mm -hmm. So 10th and 11th grade, I was mostly focused on trying to integrate to this new school and hadn't given a lot of thought to it. What happened was when my friends started getting into this conversation about where are you looking for school, everybody left me out of the conversation because they assumed I was going to Penn State. And I didn't mind that at the beginning, but then I'm like, wait a minute, you can't presume that. I can go anywhere just because I wear Penn State on my shirt three days, <laughs> four days a week. So I just started almost randomly looking at colleges and I got into some good ones, including Boston University. Mm -hmm. And you know, my mom said, hey, wow, good school. Uh, really expensive. If you really want to go, we'll find a way to make it work. Mm -hmm. But you got to call your father. So I called my father and to a word, he said, hey, congratulations. If if you really want to go, you better find a way to make that work. Because <laughs> oh. <laughs> he's a, a professor at Penn State and he mm -hmm. just knew, he's like, why would you spend tens and tens of thousands when you know you yeah. really... So in order to, to meet my definition of my own pride, I said, I'll, I'll consider Penn State, but I'm going to go at it as if I'm a true out-of-towner. Mm -hmm. Like, I've never been there before. So mm -hmm. I did the tour, went on the bus, oh, all of that stuff. And it turns out I didn't know most of what I should have known until mm -hmm. I did that stuff. Because yeah. I was just a kid who went on campus to see his mom and his dad and went to the football games and, you know, knew who Joe Paterno was. But I didn't really know Penn State. Mm -hmm. And so once I did that whole experience and I was from there... It's like, well, of course I'm going to come here. This is home. And my dad had this huge discount. And then it turns out I moved into the dorms and I was on the same floor as, as friends of mine from high school, which oh. now you would plan that stuff. Then, you know, it was way before cell phones and internet. So I just show up and they're on the, there's a big school. I'm like, Hey, wait, you know? So first day back in the fold with friends. So I, oh, I lucked out. That's yeah, great. that's cool. Um, did you guys win a national championship while you were there? I don't, I don't know. We won in, uh, we won in 82 and 86. And when I was there, um, I started 88. They were pretty lean years, first losing season in a long time. And then they had Blair Thomas who almost won the Heisman. So a right, couple of good right. years in there, mm -hmm. um, like some, some fun games, but no, I think the last, the last title that they, they, well, they finished second, they were undefeated in 94. So I was a young reporter in state college. Right on. Um, but uh, no, it's been a while. 
Well, for, for the record, Sean and I made a pact that if we talk about Joe Paterno, we'll save it for the last one fifth of the call. Okay. <laughs> so what, once we're nice and warmed up, now we don't. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's fine. It's interesting that the the town has moved on, mm-hmm. um, and a lot of students now don't really feel a connection to certainly not to Paterno, but even to the Sandusky scandal so much. Um, Mm -hmm. That's just the nature of college towns. They have this way of reinventing. Um, But collectively the locals, you still feel it because you, you, you know, you want to tell a Paterno story and you don't know is that safe ground. Or I was, I did an interview with a college student the other day and she was, we were talking about favorite ice cream flavor she asked me at the end because the the creamer there is world famous and they've got one called peachy paterno so when i was growing up it was like the you know the thing you got when bill clinton was president he came in and tried peachy paterno now i'm like does that have a stigma do you just do you go back to how it was or and so we still the name has all these different connotations you know but they, it's, have, um, they haven't changed it to Fuzzy Feller yet, you know. No, I know. Waiting for that. That would be a coup, right? That would be for that's when I'm. That's when I'm just gonna. I'm gonna have my own ice cream and just talk to you guys. There you go. <laughs> Done. Mission accomplished, right? Um. So so uh, we didn't really inform you of any of the sort of the logistics here, but usually, I mean, we're trying to get better at trying to be pro podcasters, but we're still in the, in this state where we'll, we'll do it. We'll record an intro later. Um, and, and, you know, somewhere in the intro, we kind of like to allude to why we're talking to so-and-so. And And in your case, uh, I think I, there's kind of like three things is obviously your, your book, which I thought was lovely. And I can't wait to talk about that. Um, two is that I think you came across men living, I assume, because you're, you're, you're you're in the game of continuous improvement as a as a dad and a and a person etc exactly um, and then of course you've had you had this job that's badass um so i don't know you're probably i don't know if you ever get sick of talking about this but we're going to ask anyway but um uh, just a quick backtracking here i mean i there were days when the general public, I think, could tour the White House. I think these days, very few people ever even get to see inside the White House, let alone speak to a U.S. president. And and you, I think, was spent, what, over six years working in the White House, and you've spent, I'm guessing, at least a little time in the presence of or communicating directly with two different presidents. Um, that's pretty rarefied air. Uh, and so, I don't know, maybe one day we'll get to have cocktails and I'll get some real juice out of you, you know, like zero dark 30 shit or like um, comparing (laughs) Obama to W or whatever. Um, But for now, like, I I just would love to hear you talk about like day to day for six years, such a high profile elite job, uh, probably pretty intense. Like what were like the emotions that you'd experienced most regularly when you were a white house correspondent? Well, I got to say, first of all, you've captured it extremely well for our first time chatting. And that is what it felt like. I'd say the important way to the important point to remember is when you're in that job, you're coming at it from two perspectives. One is the one you mentioned. It's not just going into an office. I'd walk down Pennsylvania Avenue, show my badge. The first gate would open. I'd clang it shut, put the badge into the Secret Service booth. They check you, come in, go through the security. You make it through all that, and then you're walking down the famous driveway. So they call Pebble Beach with the cameras stationed there. And you turn left and you go into the, you know, 
past the Marine if the president is, is in the Oval Office and you go into the doors to the briefing room and walk down and hey, Ben, you start to see familiar faces, turn right and the very first booth was the Associated Press booth. And for a while there, at the end of my time, I was the chief correspondent. So that was my entrance to work. And, you know, that's not even counting the sharpshooters on the roof and the tourists going all around. And then there's events if you're going out the back onto the South Lawn. So every time I was there, I tried to remember that feeling. This is special. Do not get beaten down by the grind of this or consumed by the competition of this. And certainly don't get so arrogant that you think, yeah, you know, this is no big deal. Of course it's a big deal, mm-hmm. you know? So I, I really did try to remember that. And, and of course there were times when you, you couldn't help but do it. Uh, if you were, you know, at a state dinner or about to board Air Force One, those moments walking into the Oval Office, they, they take your breath away, but not from a sense of, ah, what am I doing here? It's just, here we go, right? Big moment, big stakes, mm-hmm. the trappings of but the other way I approached the job and had to and became very common for me was this is work. This is work. There's so much to know. There's so much to do. And there's so much to manage that you can't really get caught up if there's a celebrity who's touring the place and comes into the briefing room. You know, mm-hmm. Tom Hanks would come through and everybody excited or whatever. Like you, you got to focus. And if you lose focus, for a minute with all the moving parts and how fast things change there, you'll get behind. If you get behind, uh, you get beat, you have, you're prone to make mistakes. And the stress of that is, is un, unbearable. So you had the glamor and the prestige and the access. You also had tremendous work and responsibility and stress, and they all fused together. It wasn't like you could sort of do one for half the day and then, and then relax the rest. They were all mixed into the same pot. And so I, I, but I always, to your point, I always try to appreciate, I get to do something that uh, most journalists never get to do. And I get to see things that people will never get to see. And, and when I left the place at night, no matter how frustrated I might be that I might didn't get anywhere on a key story, um, I'd walk out. And when I shut the gate at night and people would walk by, they'd look at me like, oh, wow, that guy just came out of the White House. Uh, Is that yeah. somebody mm-hmm. important? Mm-hmm. Am I supposed to know that person? And I always had this look back. I'm like, I'm not important. <laughs> I, co- <laughs> I cover important people. And you don't know what's going on. You're just walking by and like somebody just came out of there. And it was a great way to end the day because it snapped you back into perspective. Yeah. Is it a, is it a position you aspired to? And in, 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 at what point in your career was it something that you saw as something that you wanted to do or was attainable for you? You know, I I did not aspire to it particularly. I'd say I aspired to become a national writer. At some point in the middle of my career, I thought I can, I can do this. I can really write and report at the top level. And that was something that I felt comfortable and comfortable and competent in that I could succeed at that. And that would be fun and challenging and bring with it a better life. But the White House, no, I was primarily, I was covering a lot of politics, but I had gotten into a lane of covering education Mm -hmm. by virtue of my first job, which led to my second and so on. So when I left the uh, paper in Tampa, Florida, the Tampa Tribune, and was recruited up to become the national correspondent 
covering education for the AP, that was the big leap. Okay, mm -hmm. so I've made it to the top of my beat. What happened though was after covering that beat for a few years, it became cyclical. No matter, you know, I changed up the stories and sources changed and administrations changed, but no matter what, there was a rhythm to it. There's budget season and back to school season and, and what's major bills are gonna move through Congress. And every time I've gotten to that point in my career where it feels like I'm starting to feel, uh, it just feels very familiar, mm -hmm. then that leads to um, a, a, a sense of stagnation and that, that can affect your work. And so what, what I try to do is get ahead of that. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. and, and so I went into the bureau chief uh, at the AP in Washington and I said, listen, I've been here four years. And she looked up from her desk and was like, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> I'm like, no, I, I, you know, very, very tough woman. And, and I would basically concede to her on everything because she ran the entire bureau. So I'm like, I do know how long I've been here. She's like, okay, I get it. Ready. Let's go. Let's keep the conversation going. You want something different? What do you want? And I said, well, there's this stuff. Just stuff. She's like, no, I don't have that. No, we can't do that. And she's like, let me, let me just think on this. And her thought was to put me on the White House team. Mm -hmm. So even then, in that moment, I wasn't aspiring to it because the White House beat was the creme de la creme. And also, you know, people tended to move in there maybe from the Pentagon beat, Supreme Court or the Hill, not education. What she saw and the whole reason she brought me to the AP was this guy knows how to tell stories. Mm -hmm. ah, and so that. that's, that's, you know, obviously you got to have all the other skill sets that you need, especially at the AP, but this guy can tell stories. And so he could put us in a position, position to succeed. And they assigned me to uh, to the White House beat. This was at the end of 2006. Mm -hmm. President Bush was in office and he was heading into his last two years. Um, really interesting time mm -hmm. in, in so many different ways. And then that, because I was there when uh, President, uh, well, when, when Obama beat McCain to win the White House and mm -hmm. became President Obama, they, they kept me on. Mm -hmm. And over that period of time, his first uh, full term, I moved up to the to the chief correspondency because a couple of the people who were there had moved on to other jobs, mm -hmm. and so that was the progression. And it's I talked to when I talk to students about this, I tell that story because you couldn't have lined it up that way. Yeah, no. Tampa mm -hmm. Tribune to National Education Beat to the White House Beat. It's not a it's not a natural progression, but at mm -hmm. the same time, it's very natural. Because I kept working my ass off and keeping my head down and turning every beat into the most important beat there was. Mm -hmm. And bosses saw that and they're like, okay, well, if he could do this on this beat, why don't we put him on the more important one and put him on the more important one? And so in that sense, it was natural. Uh, but no, I, 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 was, uh, I was surprised, but then I got into it. But man, were my parents surprised. They, you know, <laughs> I brought him to the White House to, to meet the president and take it in. And I was like, I thought they would be overwhelmed by the scene. Mm -hmm. And meeting the president, and I think they were like, "What the hell are you doing?" Here? <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> that's very cool. That's very it's, cool. It's very, it's very, very cool. <laughs> well, so. yeah, it's funny you talk. I like I've been so my wife and I are both pretty wonky, and we lived in DC up in the Palisades back in like I don't know, oh one oh two. I've been that guy along with my wife outside the the fence there and trying to figure out each person that walks out of there and what you know super important thing they they've been up to etc um we we actually lived by and i was we were friends with that i played music with an old colleague of yours john dickerson did you ever know john yeah 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 so he, he's 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 done okay since since he <laughs> he's done else. he's done great yeah yeah i know um, john so 
a quick, this is not a transitional, one more question on this. So um, I don't know how much you've learned about men living along the way, but like so much of the work we do is, is, is about how we can all sort of navigate life better um, and be better at all those things. And I, you know, sir, in terms of my professional life, I've been lucky to, to find a career working to improve education for, for what it's worth. Um, before that, I served as a Navy officer on a, on a submarine, which I think is probably almost certainly always going to be my professional high watermark. And you were working in the friggin' White House in your 30s, so early in your career. Yeah. Um, I, I'm just curious, like, because I feel like it's it's parallel in some way, but do you, do you ever struggle with with that? I mean, I know you're doing great things now, and this book is awesome. But do you ever do you ever think, God, it's never going to be that again? So I had a lot of concern about that when I was leaving, and I got a great piece of advice from a former fellow White House correspondent who had uh, moved on to business, and he said, "Listen, Ben, there's two types of people who have done this work. There's people who." covered the White House, lived it, loved it, embraced it for a marvelous life experience that it was, and moved on. And then there's the other camp who go on, leave it because they have to leave it because they think they want to, and they spend the rest of their life trying to chase that same experience in another way. And they're never going to do it. And they're always going to be leading with the fact that they covered the White House. It's the first thing that they think about themselves. They, it's the first thing they want other people to think of right, themselves. Right. And you're chasing, you're chasing your own ghosts. Mm -hmm. So if you're going to do that, then find a way to stay. But if you're going to leave, embrace, embrace what you did and, and move on because life is bigger. And, and, and I knew that that was why, mainly why I was leaving anyway. But also I believed in what he said. And listen, it was, it was hard at the beginning because some people didn't understand why would you leave this? You know, like you, yeah. you finally got the, it's a reference that hopefully some of your audience will get, but you know, Willy Wonka on the chocolate factory and like, you know, Charlie wasn't supposed to get the, the ticket and he did, you know, imagine if he said, okay, I'm halfway through the tour. I'm going to give it back. You know, I'm, yeah. I'm good here. <laughs> and I'm like, well, I, I gave it back and I could have stayed and covered the second half of Obama, but Obama's presidency. And then whatever else came after that, it was the right time for me. And so I didn't really struggle because I had gotten that clarity in my mind. Now, we're recording this in 2022. In 2013, that first year out, it wasn't just that I had left the White House beat and I had to have that identity change. I'd been reporting for 20 years. It's the only thing I ever did. So anything that came after that was going to be jarring as a transition. And I ended up going into business as a communication advisor, which is really my calling now in addition to the, the book we're going to talk about. Uh, but that first year, I did feel some identity struggle. Mm -hmm. And so I found myself engaging in the public debate by moderating things on my own time and doing some appearances at CNN. And I had to assess, like, why am I doing that? What, what, what is driving me to do that? And I think it was because I was still hanging on a little bit to not so much the draw of storytelling, but the legacy of being a reporter. And I thought, well, you know what, if I'm going to spend that kind of time and investment on creative planning and events and storytelling, I'm going to put it in my new career. This is sort of this in-between thing. And that's when I really fully pivoted into being a communication counselor. And, and I've enjoyed that work a lot, too. Uh, but the, the important thing, I guess, to sum that up is 
just because you move on. I've never been a fan of these people that like, let's say you live in a city for six years and you rave about it to everybody, you know, the weather's perfect and it's great here, whatever. And then you decide to move and you're like, Oh, that place was small. And there was, you know, wasn't that. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I don't like it when you try to uh, burnish the new thing by diminishing the last thing. Yeah. You know, every place mm-hmm. has its place. And so there is no getting around the fact that there's nothing like the white house beat. And I've got, my badges framed on the wall and I've got pictures up and my son is super proud. Now he understands it. Um, there's nothing I would do to diminish that, but life goes on. Yeah. Life goes on. Yeah. And by the way, life in a lot of ways got much happier when I left. Yeah. So, so what occurred to me after our, our first conversation, um, this question, and, and you just gave me the lead in, you said, you know, I could have stayed and covered, Obama's second administration and whatever came after that. Politics aside, what came after that was certainly different. <laughs> and it, it, it just just as you watched, any pull to want to be in that room? Glad you weren't in the room. I'm just curious um, because certainly it was different. So, yeah, thoughts on uh, that? Sure. Nice attempt to say politics aside. <laughs> well, I, well, I, I mean, I get the question. I strictly, do strictly strictly from from your from you looking at it as, oh, I could have been in the room. I yeah. Think. Yeah. Uh, no, I, I. I don't. In fact, I, I go the other way. Yeah. In, in this sense that I did not see that coming at all. And I was very tapped in to the next cycle and what was going to happen. So when Donald Trump came down that escalator declaring his candidacy, I did not give it credence and I didn't want the media to overly give it credence because mm-hmm. I thought it, it would it would flame out. And of course, I was very wrong about that. Um, and as his presidency took hold, I was offended by, at a baseline level, his his assault on on the press, which was not the primary concern of Americans compared to all the other things that were happening in the world, but mm-hmm. to call the press, the enemy of the state and, and the way he castigated and insulted individual reporters and uh, attacked, you know, the free press and, and uh, that, you know, would really almost incite violence or the calls to violence at rallies of the press. So just that part of it, mm-hmm. uh, I found very offensive and beyond other parts of his, his political agenda, but I did not, so I had a tremendous respect and uh, defense of colleagues of mine who were still covering the White House, a lot of whom I knew then and who are still there and some faces I don't know, because they were doing really important work. It was always antagonistic. It's always been antagonistic. And I had that, too, but not like that, where yeah. really it was you were you were uh, being defamed <laughs> at work, mm-hmm. you know. And so uh, I, I didn't but I never missed it. Sean, because I had already decided anyway that I wanted to leave the life of covering the big stories to have a different kind of life. Now, if I had covered the White House for six months and then life changed, that'd be one thing. But I covered it for six years on top of 14 years of other reporting before that. So two decades worth was it turned out for me was enough. Never had any regrets like, oh, my gosh, you know, it's this is this is, you know, this Trump presidency is on uh, the cover of Time magazine 14 weeks in a row and every day is turmoil. And he's because what you miss about that is for all of the I can't believe what's happening. 
So who's covering the the tweet storm at two fifteen in the morning, mm-hmm. right? Or right. who's getting chastised for not covering it fast enough at two fifteen mm-hmm. in the morning? That's all me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and people like that. I don't miss that. No, yeah. and That's so great. so I I knew that it was it ended up being um, a particularly good decision in retrospect because. You know, that's that's a challenge here is if I had stayed for the second term of, of President Obama, you know, there wouldn't have been any less pressure to leave then. I'm like, well, you can't leave now. Yeah, you can't leave now. And yeah. you got to be able to make your own choice. Uh, I saw a clip yesterday. Uh, you know, President Biden made the comments about uh, Putin. You know, we got to get this guy out of power. However, he said mm-hmm. it. And, you know, that that soundbite sort of lingered for a few days, understandably. So they had a clip I saw on TV of. Steve Holland from Reuters asking him, do you think that this made it worse? And Biden responded, well, Steve, great guy. I love him. He was a mentor to me when I was there years ago. Mm. He's a lifer. Mm-hmm. Someone like that is like, I am going to be here until I just can't do it anymore. Mm-hmm. And, and I decided that, and, and his contemporary was my mentor in earnest, Terry Hunt from the AP. Terry couldn't believe I left because he saw me as him. Mm-hmm. which was a tremendous compliment and still yeah. is, but you can't, you can't assume that your beliefs apply to somebody else's life. Even if they sort of naturally fit, you're the heir apparent. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't sure. work that way. And it goes sure. into my, it goes into the fatherhood story because, you know, I had my son when I was uh, 40 and mm-hmm. so later in life and I saw the White House correspondents pushing their kids on the swing with the other hand on the cell phone and right. mm-hmm. moments, mm-hmm. even when they were in the moments, because you know, I've got to call that other source. This is more important. I'm like, no, it's not. It's yeah. Just not. It's funny. I, we, uh, in January, we had our annual men living. We used to call it a retreat. It was this weekend called, uh, this year it was called just the weekend. Um, and at some point during that weekend, I slipped out to stream a friend, the funeral of, of, of a good friend's father who, with whom I was also close. And he was a super successful, super successful dude. And in the eulogy that my friend gave to him, he's like, my dad never didn't have time for us. And I find myself guilty of this all the time where it's like, oh, no, this spreadsheet or this whatever Mm -hmm. I'm working on can't wait. Um, And you can. And it's it's one of those things where it's like I, I, I can like it's like I'm watching from five feet above. I'm like, you're making a fucking mistake. What are you doing here? Um, so it's good to be reminded of that every once in a while, but I was curious about that because your last few years you had your son and, uh, that did that factor into your decision to go back and. Yeah. I mean, there's a, there were a lot of things happening at, at life at the time. Um, but you know, when Sam was born, I had, I think the AP gave me maybe one one week off of paternity leave and mm. I had to, which was ridiculous. And I had to take a Jeez. second week on my own. And the first two weeks were just such a blur. You know, we, we didn't know what we were doing, but we were just overjoyed and exhausted. And all of a sudden I had to go back. And the first day back, the president was giving a speech in the East room. And there was a hubbub because the press secretary at the time wasn't going to allow the press pool, which is the small subset of the, of the white house that travels with the president even the press pool couldn't go into the room with him, which would have been a violation of, of protocol. And it was the East room, which is the largest room in the white house. And I remember there's like, he wouldn't let us in cause he's afraid we're going to disrupt. And I was like, what are you guys talking about? You know, we're always in there. And, and like, well, what if you drop a pen? I'm like, it just, the whole thing was so small. So mm-hmm. here I am going back to work to the most important reporting job 
And it was my job to settle this dispute between the press corps and the press secretary about whether we could stand nearby while the president gave a speech. It was mm. just so petty. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and I just remember feeling the, the incongruity of that. Cause like, it's just not that important. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's right. not that important. And so you, you, you have all of those moments and you, and I'm listen, you know, Chris, I've done, i still do what you're talking about. I had those moments too, where I'm like, I should get off the phone, but they're by a factor of a thousand. They happen less than they used yeah, to. Yeah. Right. Right. You right. Know, they just do. And, and my son notices other people notice, but you know, it's not like I, again, it's not like I had to make this huge sacrifice because I, I had a really good opportunity to do what I love for a long time. And, and then I got to have a different kind of life where as a consultant, first of all, I was tapped a different part of my brain, intellectually challenging, made more money, but I've been at every, every time, like everything I could think of, I've been to every significant event, you know, in my son's life in terms of parent teacher meetings, school plays, picking them up at practice, you know, being yeah. there. It's just, you know, for sports, um, you can't, t- you can't get that back. Right. Right. And it doesn't last that long, does it? it, it it's it's kind of, I've got yeah. 17 year old and a 13 year old that's flying by and Sean's got older kids, so he can probably speak from more experience than, than any of us. But um, yeah, I'm seeing how, how quickly it goes by. So did you, did you find, cause you stumbled across men living, right, Ben, is that how we're all here together? Is that yes. what happened first? Yes. Uh, I, um, <clears throat> came across uh, Todd and Kathy at Men Living because I was having a bunch of conversations with people in my network about the, about the children's book I wrote and potential uh, organizations and podcasts who would be interested in learning more about it. And that's how I got to know um, uh, Men Living and, and signed up and became a member and, and then um, Sean stalked me and, and the rest is history. So, That's- so what, what Ben did is he actually, he actually filled out a profile and, and I saw, I happened to be on my computer. So I saw it come in and I just looking at it and I see that this guy had written a father and son book. So I go and check it out real quick. And I'm like, Oh, this is really cool. I want, you know, to connect with him and talk about the book as well as to see if he wants to learn more like what five minutes after he sent the email and I'm like, <laughs> okay all right this is kind of creepy but i'm just gonna send you a note and just say hey do you want to dis- you do you want to talk and so um so yeah so that's how we're we're connected and and just as a transition i think you guys were talking about important stuff non-important stuff and the theme of of ben's book is really big stuff and little stuff and um you know i think there's lots of messages in it but but Ben, maybe you can kind of start by explaining why you wrote it, what was important about it, and then we can take it from there. Sure. Yeah. Thank you. So the story is about a father who helps his young son make daily life less stressful by taking what the son deems to be big problems and trying to convert them into little ones. Because when you could make problems smaller, you fix them, you accept them. And you move on with your day. And that's such a, a, I think, a skill and a relief in life. And so I did it in my real life with my son, Sam, who's now 10, by recognizing with him, we're having one of those moments, he can't zip up his coat, he can't find a toy, 
he can't do something that seems overwhelmingly frustrating to him. And I can see as a parent, it's, it shouldn't feel that way, but it does. So let's slow it down, take some deep breaths. I would get on one knee. So we were eye to eye and we'd fix the problem together. And then I asked him, you know, I don't want you to get frustrated. And he didn't know what the word meant. Mm-hmm. So he's fr- 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 frustrated. It's that bad feeling in your chest when you just can't figure something out. Mm. I don't want you to have that. So let's not get frustrated. Don't get frustrated. Let's fix the problem. And so we got into this pattern of talking like that. Don't get frustrated. This is a big problem or a little problem. And it was helpful to him. And I thought it was helpful to me too, because I felt like as a, as a dad, I was, I was doing a good thing and it felt natural to me. The, the reason I wrote the book, Sean, is that there was this moment when I was deeply frustrated by getting stuck in traffic. I lost patience. I lost perspective mm-hmm. as uh, anybody who's gotten stuck in traffic <laughs> has, has happened in their lives. And Sam didn't like how he saw me and said to me, daddy, don't get frustrated. Big problem or little problem. He didn't even really know what the problem was. Mm-hmm. He just heard a lot of profanity <laughs> and, uh-huh. and knew that probably wasn't a good thing. And so I was looking at him through the rear view mirror. He was in his car seat. And I thought this kid gets it. Mm-hmm. He, he gets what I've been saying. It's a wise remark. It's it, he, he wants to be helpful and man, just what perspective for a grown up when the kids can teach you back the lessons that you've been teaching them. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was humorous and lovely and poignant. And then as a, as a writer, I thought I want to, I want to capture that. I think that there's a story there mm-hmm. of the of the reciprocity of, of patience and perspective and and love and uh, you know a father teaching a son and then vice versa. So I had that story in mind and I kind of noodled with it for a, quite a while before finally getting my act together, getting it down, working with a, a colleague who helped me think through the the manuscript process. I found a publisher. The publisher has been great. Uh, the publisher then had to get an illustrator and all of this has taken years really mm-hmm. to get to the point where we are right now, where the book is done and is about to, to come on the market. So I I'm certainly hopeful it does well. I hope people who read it, love it, but I also think there is a moment here to broaden the conversation mm-hmm. to both coping skills and a time when everybody's so stressed out. And the fact that if you are surprised by this story and you read it and you see, it's just a dad and a son, quote, just a dad and a son, mm-hmm. you think this is unusual. It shouldn't be unusual that that it's, it's, that's as normal as anything, right? That's, mm-hmm. that's part of life. That's not the mom's role. That's not the dad's role. That's the parent's role. That's how, that's how I have raised my son. And he has a, um, a wonderful relationship with his mom where they have their own patterns and their own way of, of uh, solving problems together. Uh, this is just my take on it. And I do think that, um, living through the pandemic like everybody else, it did seem to me that when you saw all of these stories about um, how everybody was crammed into home and crammed into apartments, um, I didn't see as much coverage of the the impact on dads and, mm-hmm. and how dads were responding. There still seems to be this legacy of, you know, that's not their, that's not their primary job mm-hmm. is to mm-hmm. problem solve. And, and, and I, for me, it's, there's nothing I think about more. So, so, all right. Do you want? And there's a lot here, right? So, yeah. so let me let me let me start by asking: Were I mean, you're a storyteller, and 
And I would think at some point you think about who do you who you're writing for. Were you writing for fathers? Were you writing for people that are struggling, frustrated? Um, I mean, so who who were you writing for? So it's a great question. I think there are different audiences here. In the first case, I was writing for young kids like my son mm-hmm. at that age who could see this story, feel it, learn from it, and have uh, you know a happier, more manageable life. So it's really it's a it's a fun story, but it's a teaching tool for young kids who are in the exact same position that Sam was in. Um, and then as I got into it, I thought, well, let's look at the second half of the story, where the father loses his cool. That's me, <laughs> and the kid has to has to offer a little bit of perspective. Well, a lot of parents are in that situation, you know, where they find themselves, I've lost this moment and I need to be able to get it back. So there's really a theme in here of patience and perspective and 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 listening to your kids as well for grown-ups. Mm-hmm. So that's the second audience. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that, you know it's I I do think it honors the role of fathers and there's a special relationship in this book between father and son. And I, I love talking about fatherhood and parenting, but I do think that uh, moms, uh, grandparents, you know, guardians would would find this story to be really, um, hopefully, really charming and helpful too. It wouldn't say, "Oh, this is a dad's book" or "This is mm-hmm. not a mom's book." It's really a, a parent's book. It so happens that I write it from the father's perspective because that is my perspective. So when you put it all together, I'd say there are layers to those audiences. There's the there's the age appropriate kid, and I think some older kids would get some benefit out of this. Uh, there's the the sort of the poignant lessons for for parents, and I do think it goes to to really any parents of young children, not just dads. Uh, I'll tell you, Ben. Um, so I well, first I have uh, I think I, I get relationships mixed up when they're distant, but I think she's a cousin once removed, um, who wrote a, a little book. I think maybe she printed a hundred copies of it. We bought 20 of them. This is years ago. And it's a little <laughs> bunch of short little stories. And the last story in the book is the namesake of the book. It's called just paint it red and forget about it. It's a similar message. And, uh, I just want to share this with you because I appreciate the book so much, but like last week, my younger daughter was trying to make what for her was a pretty big decision, which is where to finish middle school. Um, not that daughter, the, the other one. Um, the, that's the seventeen-year-old. Um, but um, but I used both "Paint It Red and Forget About It" and your book, which I happen to have a copy of, thanks to you. Um, and and had her read those, and and that was probably the twenty-third hour of the fourteenth day where she couldn't come to a decision. And I think those two books really helped her get to get to one. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, uh, and. Um, and, and, you know, it's funny, too, because you talk about like parenting's freaking hard. Right. And we had exhausted all of our resources. And my wife is a is a gem. My wife is best childhood friends with Kathy Cassani. Um, and uh, and and she's so good at parenting, like she's a way better parent than I am. Uh, but we we had nowhere else to turn. So it was kind of like a last ditch effort. Like, here, go read these two short books. And like a piece came over her. Um, so. Anyway, so I guess that's that's a great story. You know, obviously, I didn't know that, but that's yet another example where uh, I can't tell you how fulfilling that is. So, do I have to pay you for the book now, or is what's the deal? (laughs) 
<laughs> well, she might, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's awesome. Had, had you ever uh, seen the book? Uh, this has been a popular book in Men Living, The Boy, the Mole, the Fox, and the Horse. I, I don't know that book. What's the author's name? Is Charles McKeezy? Is I believe right? so. Yeah, it was it, it was at the top of the New York Times bestseller list for for weeks just recently. I mean, well, maybe what two years ago? Yeah, yeah, yeah. maybe a little more. I mean, I, the reason I bring it up is because it's it's also uh, this is an author who teamed with. I, th- I don't think he did the art. I think he teamed with a, a very talented artist like you did um, and, and tells a story back to storytelling that's really accessible to a wide range of, of readers. Um, uh, and it's full of, of, of little lessons that we sometimes like take for granted or miss or forget about or whatever. I, I, I right. thought for sure you'd seen it before, but it's, it's worth checking out. I think it's, I mean, even the way I asked you about who you're writing for, I think about it from an adult perspective, I guess, because yeah. for, for me, it's something that I'm often thinking about from the standpoint of big problems, little problems. And, and, and even, you know, I'll have this discussion with my family about, you know, is this really that big of a deal or, and, and candidly, I get, I get called a minimizer. Because I'm I'm trying to right. look at it from the perspective of is this really that big that we're gonna freak out about it? And certainly it must be the way that I'm talking about it. So um you know, well, I think there's a couple learn things. from the book, hopefully to talk about it in a better way and then get the handshake down. <laughs> Listen, I, I this is a really important point, I think, in yeah. terms of the the relatability to the adult audience. Yeah. Because there are so many ways in which this applies to, to real life here. And we all know people who, who, um, you know, don't do this, this well, right. It, it's, you know, if you're or an egregious example, but if you're at a coffee shop and somebody just flips out because the bagel isn't fresh enough, just like, how, how do you, how do you get to a level 10 on that? It's just not, there's no way it is, but something's going on there where, you know, they're, they're frustrated. It's just one more thing. It's often that's that one more thing. And so I think some of it has to do with personality type, but also to your point, Sean, I think it's how you talk about it. So I was mindful of that with Sam, he would have listened to what I said and took direction anyway at that young age, because he had to, because I was the dad, but I did not think that saying, this is not that big of a deal. Yeah, right. You know, was going to be helpful to him. It's it's yep. it's accurate, but it's not helpful. Mm-hmm. How do I make you feel like it's not a big deal? Right. Well, how do you how do you so let's first of all let's slow it down. I'm not telling you to calm down. I'm actually calming you down. Let's yep. breathe together. Okay. Let's let's make this whole thing calmer. Now you already look at the situation differently. Now, what was that problem again? Oh, you can't do it. Okay. Well, let me let me show you how to do it. Zip. Now you do it. Zip. Okay. Now see. We're, we're calmer. The problem solved. There's nothing left to be worried about. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, now let's let's not just move on. Let's let's process that. Do you know understand how that that wasn't that big of a deal now? Yeah, because uh, it's done in 32 seconds, and I'm not feeling bad anymore. Okay. So the next time that happens, you'll say, "Wait a minute. I remember the zipper thing wasn't that big of a deal. This probably isn't either." Mm-hmm. You know. And so mm-hmm. then you start to get in a pattern, and then you get to the point where you tell the grownups, "Hey." perspective. It's not that big of a deal. So that that's, I think a lot of it is in how we talk about it so that it's not condescending. It's not demeaning. You don't come across as a minimizer, minimizer. You come across as a, as a helper. Yep. 
You know, right. It's, yeah. tricky. it's tricky. You know, that's yep. I, I've been reminded of that many times because, you know, I, I think particularly as men, we want to like and, and this is actually happens to be sort of a white dominant behavior too, like race to solution. Um, but but like and I've been guilty before of effectively invalidating a feeling. And, and, and so what I like uh, about your story is like you're not saying don't feel frustrated. There's no good reason to feel frustrated. You're, you're, you're sort of tricking the little guy uh, in a loving way into, into seeing the perspective that you can't just explain to, to, to a little person. So, um, I mean, that's my take on it anyway. Yeah. I, I think you, you do validate the feeling. Um, but listen, if, if we rush to problem solve, uh, let's just take up your, your thesis. We rush to problem solve as, as men. Um, I think a couple of things. There is an emotional component to this book through and through. You're, you're validating the emotion. How does it feel? So if I wasn't, if I was just teaching him how to zip the zipper and say, toughen up, get over it, you know, the, the, the point is you solve the problem, then you're missing half of it. It's how you feel is important mm -hmm. to this and knowing how to fix the problem. And so, uh, you know, but I also think that there's, we ought to, we ought to honor the fact that, you know what, there are problems all the time. There are, there are trains that we miss and papers that get lost and, you know, uh, teachers that, that forget your name and those things are going to keep happening. So let's not just focus on how it feels too. Let's actually solve some of those problems. Mm -hmm. And, and so the combination of those two things is helpful because if you just get caught up in emoting and commiserating and you don't actually fix the thing, well, that doesn't help that much either. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, but like we, we can't like we, we can't give kids a framework and say everything in column A, you should feel frustrated about and everything in column B, you should not feel frustrated about. So so what you're talking about here, I think, is like a, a, a your, your Pavlovian training of kids, I think, to to at, at a young age to 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 help them make that distinction. I, I don't I don't think you should be talking to me about Pavlovian training when I see in the background your dog is trained to like bring the pillows around the house and do the household <laughs> no, chores. Dude, she's a bird dog, so she doesn't chew them up. <laughs> so so, so, have, emotion. so so have you gotten I mean, right in the book, have you are you good at this? Have you gotten better at this? At at, at managing your emotions around what you would consider to be problems? Yeah. Yeah, I have. Um, I'd like to think I've gotten better at a lot of things. This is one of them because you can't really uh, hold this up as this is my story. This is my story of my son and I and, and a, a, a legacy book for him mm -hmm. and then not live it. So I ought to be good at, at this by now. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> but yeah, I mean, look, there was a case today where I uh, a schedule conflict came up for an event I have tomorrow night. And I, it follows at the same time as just to pick my son up from the swimming pool. I had it covered and then the bottom fell out and the ride couldn't do it. And so immediately for about, I don't know, whatever period of time, seven minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes this afternoon, I thought this is really frustrating because I, I anticipated it. I planned for it. I solved it. And now I've got another thing to fix that was already fixed, but I knew I was going to fix it. So, mm -hmm. you know, Am I so good at it that I'm like, oh, this will work out. Plan A, plan B, plan C. You know, like, no, I was right. pissed off mm -hmm. and frustrated. And so I had to, but the thing is you shrink that time. You send the follow-up email, mm -hmm. you wait because the person who you need to hear from isn't, doesn't, the world doesn't revolve around me. They wrote back, said, I got it. 
I'm like, great, thank you so much. I'll get you the next one. Boom. Right. So it's really goes back to what I was teaching Sam. So we all just need to do it. But how think about the lost time. You know, that's what I've gotten better at, Sean, is that, you know, things like that that might have maybe not that small, but things of that ilk, Mm -hmm. right? Fights that had that could last Mm -hmm. for days. It's like, you know what, I I did what I could. I'm gonna continue to do what I get. I just you can't let it stick with you. Right. And that's 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 getting better at life. So Ben, since the day you showed up on campus as a freshman at Penn State <clears throat> until now, have you ever had a work product with as few words as are in this book? <laughs> uh, you know, it's interesting because a children's book is, you know, somewhere between 600 and 1,000 words. Yeah. Uh, let's just say 750. You know, that's about the length of, of an op-ed in a newspaper. Mm-hmm. Um and so I, I definitely have written news stories uh, over the years that were short, you know, 500 words or, or the like. Uh, but I've certainly never had one that was this short that also then took so long. Because it's just such a it's such a production. There are so many different elements that have to go into a successful book like this, including, as you said, the uh, or alluded to, I believe, the illustrations um, by a supremely talented artist, mm-hmm. uh, Merce Lopez, who was uh, brought into the project from the publisher of Tilbury House. All of that conveys the sense of 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 love mm-hmm. and partnership in the book. Um, so th- all, this has been new to me that the process of this. You know, it's really interesting because if you said, "How would you write a State of the Union speech in?" 27 minutes and get the first version out for history while listening to the president speak, pulling in immediate reaction from Congress, getting color from the room and never, ever making a mistake. How would you do that? I'm like, well, I could talk to you about that. How do you write a children's book? (laughs) Because I didn't know anything about this, anything about it. In fact, I, the thing that I was most worried about was getting rejected based on process. That stuff frustrates me to use the theme of the day is that, you know, I was seeing all, I was reading articles trying to get ready about this. And they said, well, you better have it spaced this way and you better make sure that you deliver it in a way that's like so much to worry about. I don't right, want to, I just right. want to write the book. Yeah. And it turns out that the process actually of getting that part together wasn't that arduous. The harder part was trying to get this through during a pandemic when nobody could focus anyway. And then you layer in the industry was sinking because it's, you know, it's very hard to buy books or sell books. When everybody's just trying to stay alive. So there was a lot of extra, you know, obstacles. But I think that the irony of it is that the timing is great because I don't know about you guys, but I living here in New York City, there's still a latent feeling of tension that people have. There's just that you just feel it in your skin, you feel it in your shoulders. Oh, and so one that says, Hey, how how about here's a little charming tale that we can all make our life a little easier? That seems to me pretty timely. Amen. Yeah, yeah. And and you know, more and more keeps piling up to make everyone more anxious and, and less at ease. So, um, so, so you're a storyteller that's well-established by now. Like, are, are you going to write more and, and what kind of stuff? You know, it's, it's very much to be determined this um, we're about uh, two months away from the book being released. And I'm interested to see the reaction to it and how the reaction makes me feel about writing more books. Like I really want to kind of feel this because this one was from the heart. It, it's, you know, I, I lived it as we've talked about uh, very personal. I've never written something this personal before. And so 
Um, I want to see how it feels as a writer to, you know, I don't just want to make it an assumption that, okay, now comes the next one. Um, but I'm certainly inspired to keep writing. I, and, and, it, um, you know, Chris, it might take a totally different form. Yeah. The next one. Um, <clears throat> I'm, I'm thinking about that. You know, I, I wrote a piece during the pandemic about, um, it was really a precursor to the book in some ways, my son and I, um, bonding over baseball during the pandemic when when he lost his little league and nobody could even really go outside but mm -hmm. you know we were able to social distance and wear masks and play catch and he fell in love with baseball right at the moment when you couldn't play baseball mm -hmm. so he just asked me to go play wiffle ball play anytime we could and he got into baseball cards and he that, that loved hearing the stories about it when i played when i was a kid and it was this great reminder of hope in the spring, the rites of passage of baseball, even when the world was shutting down. So when I wrote that story, my dad wrote me a note and said, I know you help your clients tell their stories, but you got to keep writing mm. in your own voice. Mm. And it, it was almost like it wasn't a pat on the back. It was, it was, it was interesting from his perspective as a father, he's like, you, you really, you have to do this because if you don't, you're, you're sitting on a gift. Now, that, not my words, his words, but I thought, wow, that was really powerful because he was very affected by that, that piece. Yeah. Um, and he's also, he and his wife love big problems, little problems because they've adopted the mantra in their house. If they can't find a spatula or something, you know, they say big problem or little problem. Yeah. So when you put all that together, Chris, it's, it's, it's inspiring and it, it motivates me, but I don't know what the it is there. I, I'll, I'll have to get to that. What, what did your folks teach? Cause both your mom and dad, it sounds like we're professors. What did they, what did they teach? At yeah. The university? Uh, so my, my dad is a retired um, professor of economics um, and uh, his wife, my stepmom is also a, a, a doctorate who worked in the field of research around uh, drug abuse prevention mm. uh, among at-risk kids. And, mm -hmm. and my mom uh, also retired, uh, was an admissions counselor, both at okay. Penn State and, and SUNY Binghamton. So I have mm -hmm. three parents who are steeped in uh, yeah. academia, uh, teaching and, and administration. So, so one of the things I get, and I, I think I've alluded this throughout the discussion about big problems, little problems, is you you continue to call it a children's book, which I get, right? We have to label it, we have to put it into a genre. Uh, I have over a dozen children's books, that's air quotes, on my shelf, that to me are some of the most meaningful books I have. And and as I've cleaned out my bookshelf multiple times, they're the ones that continue to stay. Mm -hmm. So I just want to make the point that having read this book, having seen it, the messages that are there, it's more than a kid's book. I listen. Um, I think <laughs> that my son just came in and uh, <laughs> surprised the hell out of me. <laughs> hey buddy. Sorry. Um, I, I think that that's a lovely sentiment. And that's when, when you were asking me a second ago about what am I going to write about next? And I said, it's going to depend on some of the reaction. Why would that have to be the case? Well, because I'm a student of this experience too. I've never gone through this. So your comments there, Sean, are my reaction is like, oh, I, I thought about that too. It's like, I didn't think about that. Mm -hmm. I, I would not have thought that you'd say, you'd look at it on your bookshelf and you'd almost, you're almost struggling to call it a kid's book mm -hmm. because of the teaching. Because if you saw this in the store and we had never spoken and you saw it in the window, um, it is a kid's book. It's, it's illustrated that way, but the lessons therein are applicable to, to all of us. And that's 
the more I talk about it with others who are starting to read it, the more that's settling into me. You know, it's not just a bank shot, but it's a core part of the piece. And that's fun to hear. Uh, is, if, if Sam is still there, I'd love to get his take on the lockout. <laughs> you know all, all he knows all he knows is that he's gonna he's gonna go to opening day with his dad um nice. i've taken him to uh we moved to new york city when he was one and so i've taken him to every opening day except for uh the pandemic when there were no games and um you know i've got a i've got a great father-son baseball store for you guys if you don't mind My yeah own, please please because this was you know, was one of my friends called me with, with like a little bit of exasperation, right? They're like, man, you're going to be father of the year, aren't you? So what happened was I, he, Sam and I made a sign a few years ago for the Yankee star right fielder, Aaron judge. And the sign says, Hey, Aaron, thanks for making me a baseball fan. And we put a lot of time into the sign. I thought we were just going to stencil it out and color it in with a black Sharpie, but Sam wanted to do every letter a different color. So we're painstakingly filling in this sign. We bring it in. I get seats behind the right field wall and we hold it up. And I just forgot that Yankee stadium seats like 50,000 people. And, you know, there's a lot of people that like Aaron judge. So he didn't see somehow he didn't see us, you know? So year after year, we bring the sign, we try to see it and, you know, it's just, it's not working. Um, and so I thought, okay, this pandemic is killing my spirit thing after thing got canceled and I'm going to splurge and I'm going to get tickets right next to the dugout. And so I do, and they were really expensive. I'm like, that's okay. Discretionary income. Who's going to remember how much they cost? I'll do it. Well, then a hurricane comes through and rains out the game. And so this is last August. So now they're like, okay, well, there's only one or two open dates left. And it was possible that it wasn't going to work out. Well, they schedule it for, uh, I think, a Monday or Tuesday in September. <clears throat> And right after the school year began, and I said to Sam's mom, like, listen, I'm taking them out of school. <laughs> it's second day. We're going to this game. And we we go in early and the, the, the tickets, the seats are amazing. They're surreal. We're right there, you know, right behind home plate, right next to the dugout. And, uh, you know, the manager, Aaron Judge, uh, Aaron Boone waves at Sam and Garrett Cole, the starting pitcher, waves at Sam. And I'm looking at him like, you know, they're waving at you, right? There's only, you're the only kid sitting here. <laughs> and uh, as the game starts to go on, uh, at some point, Aaron judges, he's got his knee up and he's about to come up and he looks over at Sam and acknowledges the sign, just nods his head. I'm like, all right, buddy, well, that's it. Like we did it, you know, uh -huh. but then what happened is, uh, he goes up to bat. He's on the on deck circle and Brett Gardner who's ahead of him, fouls one back into the net judge, picks it up, throws it to Sam. Oh. Uh, the, these young guys from wall street are sitting in front of us. They catch it and judge looks at them like, give it to the kid. They're like, we're just kidding. Of course we are. So they hand it to Sam. So now he's got the ball thrown to him from Aaron judge. And he's just, you know, over the moon as am I. So the Yankees were down five, nothing. They go on to win the game six to five on an Aaron judge home run. Oh my God. All right. Uh, and <clears throat> After the game, all of the players disappear. Judge is the only one left. He's doing an on-field interview. He comes in, and Sam, I said, Sam, get get right. We're leaning over now. He's leaning over the dugout, and I got the Sharpie, and I got the cap. Like, Take the cap off. Take the cap off. Uh, judge comes in, grabs his stuff, and starts to go down the tunnel. I'm like, all right, well, you know, we tried. He inexplicably, like, catches Sam out of the corner of his eye, comes back, takes the pen, wow. and signs it for him. Only one autograph that day. 
just just for Sam. And so now we're just in disbelief. Like that just happened, you know? And I, I'm just shouting to anybody and I go up to the usher and I give him a hug. <laughs> She's like, okay. All right. Dad. <laughs> I said, I said, did you, did you see that? He goes, yeah, I saw the whole thing. He's like, you know, I've only, I've been here a long time. I've only ever seen him come back like that for a kid once. He's like, you know what the key was? I'm like, what? He goes, you had the cap off way to go. Nice attention. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so we've got that ball on his shelf in his room and uh, you know, like, it's there's a lot of things that went right that day, but it, it, it and, and obviously I'm in a position of privilege where I can get those tickets and I'll never be able to afford that again. But look, look at that story, you know, look at that, yeah. look at that memory and, and all of it. And if he hadn't gotten his attention, it still would have been a great day. You got to be there and make it happen. Yeah. That's unforgettable. So, so, who did, wait, so who are the Yankees playing opening day this year? Playing the Red Sox team yeah. from uh, from Boston, I believe. Yeah, that was a beautiful story. I I hope you and Sam get your asses. <laughs> <laughs> so it's so funny because I was just thinking, I was just thinking that I should have abstained from dropping all the f bombs, which are regular on this, because now Sam won't listen to this. But that's good because I'm reading now that the Yankees just traded Judge to the Red Sox. Oh uh, no, <laughs> love Aaron Judge. No. I love Aaron Judge. Yeah, you didn't the get best. me there. He's the best. Yeah, the, the Red Sox signed like eight eight infielders for four positions, and the right, Phillies find right. no outfielders for all the outfield right. positions. And the Yankees are just like, we'll just figure this out. You know, uh, right. so good, yeah. so good. Yeah. Um, wow, shit, we're almost at an hour. I wanted to ask real quick. Um, we don't usually talk to people about work, but you did say earlier, Ben, that um, you're in a place now where you're finding fulfillment. And I, I, was, I just wanted to get the, the sort of the, the rundown on what is it you're doing, which I apologize for not knowing, and um, and why is it fulfilling? Sure. So when I left journalism uh, nine years ago now, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I just knew that I wanted to do something different and find a way to transition uh, with my journalism skills. And so the natural place for a lot of externalists is to go into you know, what's widely viewed as, as PR, public relations. But I had been on the receiving end of so many bad pitches to me. When I say bad pitches, I mean by uh, PR people who didn't really understood what I do, how I wrote, what my interests were, what my readers' interests were. They were just trying to get something for their client. And, and so I didn't have a particularly fond view of it. And so when I was thinking about going into uh, something beyond journalism, I did a lot of investigating of the broader public relations, public affairs space and found a place that was really emphasizing not who I knew, but what I knew. They said, there's a market value for what you know. If you know the intersection of politics and regulation and Washington and New York and how to tell a story and how to reach audience and how to connect to people and get them to tell your stories, there's a market value for that. The the business world and the nonprofit world will pay you for that, but you got to figure it out. You have to figure it out. There's no, there's no, we're not going to be particularly good at helping you. You got to, you got to figure out this, this business and the city. And so that was nine years ago. And I, I did it. I really loved learning something new. I love the challenge of it. I created a niche in storytelling and brand identity development, primarily for uh, organizations that were kind of on the mission side of life, universities and foundations. And I did a bunch of corporate work as well. Uh, and so that's what I mean by, you know, I'm still writing, still thinking, still problem solving, but I'm focused more on the strategy side of, of places that are trying to do big things and helping them think it through and communications are as part of that, as opposed to media relations, which a lot of people do and do really well, which is 
you know, pitching your stories to the press. I just didn't have a particular interest in that. So now as we, you and I, um, the three of us talk today, I'm really focused on, on the book. I've, I've left that firm I was at for nine years um, because I really felt like I needed a change. It's sort of like what I, that pivot point I mentioned earlier, wanted a change of energy, wanted a change of scenery, especially coming out of the pandemic. Uh, want to go to a place that has um, a different kind of focus at this point in my career. And I'm, I'm in the process of deciding what that is. I've been exploring over the last you know month or so and uh, really want and need a sense of, of reinvigoration, frankly, mm-hmm. after spending a lot of time you know, working with clients and, and trying to sell clients over the last two years in my Brooklyn apartment, I need, uh, I need change. And so I, I left and started 2022 with a whole fresh outlook and, uh, and I'm going to go get it and uh, I'll, I'll uh, be choosing soon. Nice. That's, that's exciting. Good luck with all that. Thank you. We'll, Thank we'll, you. We'll keep an eye on you. Um, is there anything that either one of you guys wanted to cover that we didn't? Well, I, I would just say to both of you, um, I really appreciate the the podcast and the energy you guys bring into into this storytelling and also giving lift to the, to the roles of, uh, of men who are living well and living right and trying to add back. And I have tremendous appreciation for that. You guys are a lot of fun to talk to. And also for anybody who's listening and, and, uh, wants to buy the book, it's, uh, available wherever you like to get your books. That's nice and easy, you know, just go to your store and, and if they don't have it, they can order it. Uh, you can find it on the web. It's available for pre-order now. And, um, I hope everybody who gets a chance to get a copy, uh, really loves it. Yeah. We'll, it, it's we'll continue to push it too. Yeah. So yeah. it's a beautiful book. Um, okay. We have to ask you, um, we do that inside the actor's studio, few questions at the end here, sort of canned <laughs> questions. Um, they're, they're, you know, every, every time we do one of these, I think increasingly God, these sound cheesy, but I, I but they're meaningful to me at least. So, uh, well, yeah, but the, the other problem we have is we want to expand on them once we, at, once no, we get an I'm, answer, I'm which is the worst one, part. I'm, <laughs> cutting, I'm cutting question right. number oh, two. I, did, I said, we, I said, <laughs> I didn't, I wasn't just giving it to you. All right. So easy peasy, Ben, like don't, don't overthink any of this. Um, mm-hmm. And this one, I can see where this is going. First question is what do you wish you could have told your 10 year old self? Relax. Relax. It's what I tell my 10 year old son. And that's what I wish I could have told my 10 year old self. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And we continue to tell ourselves even at the age of 52. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, next question is what do you hope that people say about you at your wake? Good guy. Great dad. Awesome. Uh, last one. Uh, do you have a mantra in life these days? You know, my mantra for a long time has actually been uh, stay humble. Uh, I, I have had the privilege to be around a lot of incredibly accomplished people. And I've always been impressed by people who uh, are that accomplished, but don't make it seem like they are. Uh, I'm not a fan of arrogance and I am a fan of humility. Um, mm. So I, I try to live my life that way. So stay humble was and, and still is a mantra. But lately, I think it's probably been superseded by uh, the 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 pursuit of happiness, mm-hmm. you know, just a reminder that that life is is ultimately about the pursuit of happiness for the people that you love and for yourself. And and I lost that a little bit uh, during the pandemic, and I'm, I've been trying to 
to get it back. So um, I'm glad you, I'm glad you ended with that and not what what I want people to say at my wake. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm just, still here, man. Yeah, that's right. There's a yeah. method to this madness. We're not just making this shit up. We're pros, after all. That's yeah, how we started right. out. This you way. are. I told you you're pros. Right. Uh, well, man, thanks so much for 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 agreeing to come on. Um, you know, thanks for sending us that book. Thanks for writing the book. Um, you know, hopefully we uh, we'll, we'll cross paths again uh, over those cocktails because I need those fucking stories from the White uh, House. Yeah. I'll give you war stories. If, if you give me cocktails, I'll give you any stories you want, man. <laughs> right up my alley. <laughs> well, we're, we're trusting the book will be a great success and uh, we're going to let as many people as we, as we can know about it. So all the best to you. Thank you, Sean. And thank you, Chris. You guys are great and look forward to the next conversation. Awesome. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, ben. All right. Cheers guys. See you nice. later. Bye-bye. This is Chris. Thanks again for joining us on this episode of If You've Come This Far. And this is Sean. Remember to check us out at menliving.org.